Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes. This week, we'll be looking at the Omicron COVID-19 variant, changes to the vaccination booster programme, and how this could all impact on practice workload in the coming months. We'll also be discussing the results of the BMA's industrial action ballot and what went on at the English LMC's conference last week, including the first address by new GPC England chair, Dr Farah Jamil, and a wide-ranging debate on GP and practice staff wellbeing. Later in the podcast, Luke will be talking to Dr Matt Sawyer, a GP in Yorkshire, about a new calculator that he has developed to help GP practices calculate their non-clinical carbon footprint and steps practices can take to be more sustainable. And while good news seems to be a bit thin on the ground at the moment, we will be discussing a positive development from general practice in Wales at the end of the show. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. We've all now heard of the Omicron COVID-19 variant, which has been designated a variant of concern by the World Health Organization because of a large number of mutations, many of which are on the spike protein. Officials and scientists have suggested that these mutations could potentially increase the virus's transmissibility and possibly impact on the effectiveness of the vaccines and also medications currently used to treat COVID. Obviously, it's important to mention that we don't yet know whether this variant is going to cause any more problems than the variants we currently know about. Scientists are studying the virus to work out what potential impact it could have. But in light of concerns about the mutations, the government is taking a number of additional measures in an effort to slow transmission. Face masks will now be compulsory in shops, banks and other such indoor settings and also on public transport, but not in hospitality venues. And anyone entering the country will be required to take a PCR test on their return. Nick, there's also been a big change to the booster programme. Can you talk through what's happening now? Yeah, so because of the potential threat posed by the Omicron variant, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation has recommended a significant expansion and acceleration of the COVID-19 vaccination programme. The, the aim now is to offer a booster jab to all over 18, so the entire adult population, by the end of January 2022. And the committee has said that these jabs can be offered from three months after people receive their second jab, which halves the six-month gap it recommended previously. For patients with severe immunosuppression who've received three doses of COVID-19 vaccine as part of their primary course, a booster, a fourth jab, therefore, will also be offered uh, three months after their third jab. And at the same time, second doses will now be offered to 12 to 15 year olds, following on from a previous decision to offer second jabs to 16 and 17 year olds. And again, the time period between doses could also be reduced for this group from 12 to eight weeks if the committee decides that that's needed. Right. OK. I mean, clearly, GPs and practices are really worried about the impact this is all going to have on workload and their already exhausted teams. What are some of the concerns that are being raised? GPs are already under massive pressure from heavy workload and reduced workforce. Um, practices are delivering more appointments than before the pandemic at a time when the BMA estimates each GP is caring for around 300 more patients on average than in 2015. And practices have been flat out throughout the pandemic. The government has said It recognises that stepping up to deliver this bigger, faster vaccination campaign will be a huge challenge for NHS staff. But Sajid Javid says he, open quotes, knows they will be up to the task. The thing is, 
although we've heard about some measures such as stopping CQC inspections, uh, we don't yet have any more detail on other measures NHS England says uh, it's considering to reduce pressure on general practice. And as things stand, the BMA says practices simply don't have the capacity or staff to deliver this next phase of the campaign. Yeah, and quite a lot of practices also dropped out of providing the boosters because their staff were exhausted, they just have too much work to do. And also because other sites such as pharmacies uh, are now delivering vaccinations, but obviously ramping up the number of vaccinations the NHS delivers, which this whole plan for the booster programme will involve, it will obviously mean all hands on deck. So what is NHS England doing to try and persuade some of those practices that may be dropped out to come back? The first point is they've announced an increase in funding per vaccine. So the, the basic fee per jab is rising to £15. That's up about a fifth from the amount practices were paid in previous phases of the COVID-19 vaccination programme. Uh, for jabs on Sundays, that fee rises to £20. And for doses administered to housebound patients, it's £30. And the, the government's also looking at whether the 15-minute wait after administration of jabs, which is a major factor that slows practice down and adds to logistical challenges in terms of limited premises space, uh, could be removed. Um, as we touched on briefly earlier, CQC inspections have been stopped as they were earlier in the pandemic. And other measures are apparently under consideration. Chief among the steps GPs have asked for is probably a repeat of the freeze on quaff, something that practices have been calling for as a key way to reduce the administrative burden for many, many months now. Yeah, the BMA um, has also said, obviously, it's worried about the impact Omicron might have on the NHS as a whole and, and pressure on hospitals. They also want to see further restrictions introduced as well, don't they? That's right. The BMA is concerned that the steps the government has announced so far, such as a renewed requirement for masks to be worn on public transport and in shops, don't go far enough. Uh, and they'd like to see that extended to all public indoor settings. The BMA has also raised concerns over recent changes to infection control measures that reduce requirements around social distancing, has called for a rethink on, on that. Um, we've also seen some suggestions of a divide between the government and key advisers on how far advice on restricting, restricting social contact should go. The UK Health Security Agency has talked about cutting down unnecessary social contact over the festive period. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson has appeared to push back against that by saying that the government is not changing advice on how you should live your life. Right, OK, so uh, uh, Boris thinks we should all have Christmas parties. Maybe some of the scientists think it's not such a good idea. Anyway, we touched on we touched on workload there. Uh, one of the other things that's happened in the last couple of weeks is a new set of appointments in general practice data was published. Uh, we talk about these fairly regularly on the podcast, but, but Luke, what did this latest set of data tell us about what's currently going on in general practices and how practices could cope with any additional work that might be coming their way with the vaccination programme? Yeah, so official data show us that GPs continue to be incredibly busy delivering over 30 million appointments in October. This was 6.4% higher than in September, and it's the first time since at least early 2019 that appointments have passed the 30 million uh, threshold. Of these 30 million consultations, 19.5 or 64% were carried out in person, rising from 60% in the previous month. When COVID appointments were factored in, so not just routine appointments, general practice actually hosted 33.9 million appointments, and that was 15% higher than the 29.5 total appointments conducted um, in September, and the highest total since March this year. 
So from these figures, we can see that GPs were pretty much at max capacity before the expansion of the COVID booster campaign was announced. So anything bureaucratic in nature just needs to be paused right now to give GPs that breathing space they need. And I think many are waiting with bated breath to see what further measures NHS England could possibly introduce. This appointment data is what's been driving much of the media and government's unhealthy obsession with face-to-face appointments in recent months. And that, of course, is what led to punitive access proposals put forward by the government earlier this year, which we've talked about at length on the podcast before. GPs and other regular listeners will remember that the BMA was balloting the profession on possible industrial action in response to these plans. The results of that ballot were revealed by new GPC England chair, Dr Farah Jamil, in her first speech as chair at the LMC's conference last week. Nick, can you talk through what the results of the ballot were and also give us a bit of a flavour of Dr Jamil's speech and what she's putting forward to the government and to the profession? So in terms of Dr Jamil's speech, um, there was an interesting mix of defiance and at the same time, a real invitation to the government to work with the profession. She talked about an opportunity to reset the relationship with the government and a willingness to work with the government to, open quote, build general practice back better. There was an olive branch being offered there. But as you mentioned, Dr Jamil unveiled the results of a ballot of GPs over forms of industrial action practices may be willing to take. Um, And she described the profession as demoralised, broken and exhausted and said that the, uh, the ballot results showed practices were ready if needed to push back against the government. Um, this was an indicative ballot. I mean, that's something we've mentioned before. And so it was one carried out to gauge opinion in the profession rather than as an immediate precursor to industrial action. And to set the context, it was carried out in response, as you said, to real anger in the profession over the controversial access plan and support package that was unveiled in October. When it comes to that access plan, GPs felt that not only would it fail to offer real support, but it actually increased pressure on general practice. In terms of the ballot, one of the key parts was around practice's willingness to pull out of the PCN DES, which Luke is going to say a bit more about. Uh, but more than half of practices are willing to step back from that. Uh, and the vast majority were willing to defy a requirement to declare NHS income over £150,000, as well as to pr- refuse to provide COVID-19 vaccination exemption certificates. Uh, or to take part in coordinated and continuous change to their appointment book. And that's basically a measure to disrupt data collection by NHS England. So all of these measures are things that aim to reduce bureaucratic pressure on GPs, to disrupt government processes and demands without impacting on patients. And the ballot shows that practices are largely willing to take those sorts of steps. Dr Jamil said this could be a defining moment for general practice, but GPs are going to have to hope that if that's the case, that the definition works out in a positive way for the profession. So Luke, um, Nick mentioned there about the the vote that the majority of people voted that they would be prepared to to pull out of the primary care network, Des. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the significance of that? Yeah, so I think it's quite significant in terms of the future of uh, PCNs, this vote, because it shows that a number of practices are unhappy with the model and don't want it to continue because um, it's causing too much pressure and they just can't see the the benefits amid this huge, huge workload. I know that PCNs are one of the jewels in the crown of NHS England's long-term plan, so I think they're going to have to listen. That's 
NHS England uh, to these results and really take on board what uh, GPs are saying about PCNs. I also think uh, it potentially strengthens the hand of the BMA um, at the negotiating table because they can go to NHS leaders and say a significant proportion of GPs uh, signalling that they're ready to quit this. What are you going to do about it? I'm, I'm sure that's what the BMA will be hoping the ballot will achieve. One of the big focuses of the LMC's conference this year was the themed debate on well-being. That took up quite a big chunk of the second day. I mean, it was a very emotive debate with lots of people telling very personal tales about how the current workload and workforce crisis is affecting them and their colleagues. Luke, what did you take away from that debate? Yeah, so before the debate, I actually sort of posted a quick tweet saying that I thought it was going to be an honest but revealing insight of what it's like to be a GP at the moment. And it was exactly that. So so we heard lots of personal accounts of GPs working days. Um, often these were very emotive stories with many setting quite a bleak scene. Um, so one GP described the conditions of general practice as utterly toxic, sharing that a colleague of his was coping with the pressure at work by stopping in a late by most nights and crying before they went home. Um, amid rising incidents of abuse against GP teams, he warned that there wouldn't be a health service fit for patients if abusive behaviour uh, towards staff continued um, because they won't want to stay in the job. Um, and I haven't even mentioned some of the examples of physical abuse uh, suffered by staff that were shared, such as bricks through windows uh, and a GP suffering a fractured skull. Another GP who had moved to part-time work a few years ago uh, said that she was just as busy now as what she was when she was working full-time. She also um, added that even though staff had, had been ill, they were working through illness just to keep on top of, uh, of work. But I think the speaker who resonated most strongly with me was a locum GP from London who said that she was suffering a, quote, toxic relationship with general practice. Although she said she loved her job, she admitted that she had to switch from salary to locum work to protect her mental health during the pandemic uh, and had limited her working hours. So as you can see from some of these stories, it's really difficult being a GP at the minute. Um, and this is why many are calling for NHS England and the government to step up to the mark and introduce what they would call proper measures to tackle burnout and abuse, because otherwise... Otherwise, there's not going to be much of a primary care service left. Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, there was quite some quite, uh, like you say, very emotional tales in that debate. Um, moving on, I mean, there were some other motions that we flagged up uh, on the last episode of the podcast as things to look out for. So perhaps we could take a quick look at one of them. Um, Nick, was the motion on negotiating a new contract that I mentioned last time. What happened with that one? So this is far from the first time that LMCs have criticised the existing GP contract, but it's significant that at this latest conference, they voted for the BMA to negotiate a fee-for-service contract. Uh, and um, the, the motion they carried uh, says uh, that this should include item-of-service payments for core general practice work uh, uh, you know, to replace the current block contract. So, of course, there's, there's no guarantee that the BMA will be able to negotiate this or that the government would agree to it. But it does reflect the deep dissatisfaction with the current contract GPs work under. If it did happen, it would represent a huge change from the current deal and would effectively represent a return to something like what was in place before the 2004 contract. 
Now, that 2004 contract is effectively what remains in place now, and it's specifically aimed to do away with item of service payments to simplify the funding system for general practice and deliver pay based on capitation, weighted largely for the sex and age of patients on practices lists. The, the problem is that increasing complexity of the patient's practices look after and demand for appointments has risen sharply over the past decade and a half. And funding per patient just hasn't grown in a way that reflects that. And um, the, the block contract that practices are effectively working under uh, simply doesn't reflect uh, sharp changes in the amount of workload involved in delivering general practice to, uh, to the current patient population. So I've, I've spoken to a couple of accountants since, since the, that vote, and they've warned that, you know, although I think they accept that the contract is outdated, it certainly doesn't reflect the, uh, the workload that GPs are delivering. Um, there could be some major drawbacks of moving to something like uh, an item of service payment model. So what one factor they mentioned is a potential significant rise in bureaucracy, which is something practices already have more than their fair share of. And, you know, item of service, you could argue, is something a bit like turning the whole contract into something a bit like the quaff, where each each thing that practices do is, is measured by hitting a target and then they get a payment for a specific thing. So itemizing everything that GP practices do is an incredibly complex task, which, uh, you know, could lead to just a, a, a significant rise in bureaucracy. The, the other thing that the accountant said was that they were, you know, they were concerned about whether a, sh- a major shift in a contract like that would deliver winners and losers, which is something that has been a problem in uh, in changes in the contract in the past, or certainly in major changes to the contract. There's certainly a significant element of risk attached to uh, a major change, particularly something like this that could lead to a a sharp rise in in bureaucracy for practices. So we're joined today by Dr. Matt Sawyer, who is a locum GP in Yorkshire and the creator of the GP Carbon Calculator, an online tool which helps practices to measure their non-clinical carbon admissions. When he's not treating patients, Dr. Sawyer combines his passion for primary care and climate awareness by running an environmental sustainability consultancy business, SEE Sustainability, providing practices with practical knowledge to achieve net zero. He's, um, he's also a GP trainer. So welcome to the pod, Dr. Sawyer, and thank you for speaking to us thank you very much for having me today yeah I, I know you're speaking at the clean med europe conference later this week so you must have an even busier week than uh, than usual so yeah i'm looking forward to uh, to spreading the news to uh, to the rest of europe as well as the uk so do you think gps are well placed to lead on environmental um issues and, and work and really champion the cause for climate awareness Absolutely. Very, very much so. We are on the front line with our patients and their families every single day. We, for example, pick up the pieces from mental health problems when people are flooded out of their homes. Being flooded out for two years can take a real toll. Uh, We see those with conditions that are linked to air pollution, whether it be respiratory, cardiovascular, but also we know that there's an increasing amount of dementia and Parkinson's and cataracts as a result. We look after those who have suffered from heat waves and extreme weather conditions. So we see the impact every single day. And we really advocate for, for not only our patients and communities, but our staff. And I know that we all want to provide um, the best health that we can for the populations that we look after. And for me, that is uh, absolutely critical and linked to uh, to, to the climate crisis and uh, and climate awareness. So I think that there's nobody better placed to uh, to lead on environmental work than primary care. Yeah. So I think we should probably start off the pod by asking some questions about the carbon emissions calculator. Um, so what is it, and when did you first come up with the idea? 
Thank you. Yep. So a carbon calculator really is a very simple way to calculate the total amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted from, in this case, running our practices. All of the activities that we perform have really got an impact on the natural world around us, including the emissions of gases which harm our planet uh, and contribute to the uh, both the climate and the ecological crisis. During, uh, during today, if I say carbon emissions, what I really mean is carbon dioxide equivalent emissions, and this covers all the greenhouse gases. And the calculator really is there to try and uh, add up all of these different emissions so that we can, for the first time, really see the hotspots uh, where our emissions are coming from, uh, from a practice, uh, from a non-clinical perspective. I just wanted to ask how you sort of came about this topic and how you got interested in uh, in sort of, I guess, the net zero ambition and how it ties in with your work as a, as a GP. Well, I've been a GP for over 15 years now, but I think my interest in sort of planetary health and uh, and global health has actually been around for far longer. Um, about seven, eight, nine years or so ago, I sort of stopped uh, or stepped down from being a, a GP partner, really, because uh, the environmental interest uh, took over. So I went back, uh, continued to locum, but went to university and did another uh, uh, bachelor's in environmental science and then a, a master's in corporate sustainability and environmental management. And this really was a platform for me to sort of bridge that gap between sort of human health and medicine with the planetary health and the natural world uh, around us. So I'd learned a lot of uh, a lot of stuff about environmental sustainability, but it was how to convert that, how to translate that into uh, being able to help other GPs, other GP practices across primary care. And so this is you know, one of the tools that uh, I think that we in uh, primary care need to, to be able to recognise that impact that we are having on the world around us. So it's really about trying to find a way to help people uh, take some of that sort of expertise and put it into a practical something that they can do every day. So yeah, I was actually sort of looking at the calculator, and it looks it looks fairly straightforward and very usable. Um, as I was looking, I saw that there were sort of four main areas of the calculator. Um, I wondered if you could sort of tell us what sort of information practices would need to put into the calculator and how it how it all works. Yeah, so it it is designed to be as simple as possible. Um, so for non-clinical emissions, so this is excluding uh, inhalers and, and prescriptions and, and medicines. The non-clinical emissions, the four are the energy, which is really the uh, the gas and the electricity, um, travel emissions, which includes both staff and patients, uh, the goods that we buy, both the medical, but also the office-based sort of equipment and consumables, and also the services that we need to, to run our practices. So in terms of the minimum amount of data that is needed, it's very, very simple. It's What's the energy bills over the last year? How many staff and how many patients are there? And how much have we spent on uh, on goods uh, and on services for our practices? Now, actually, that gives us a very crude uh, emissions footprint. Um, but the calculator allows people to go into more detail so that they can actually break that down so that it could be, for example, the, uh, the staff travel could be the postcode from where the staff lives, how many days they work, how they travel to uh, how they travel to work, so we can get a much more accurate picture. Um, so there's there's some very basic information that the practice would probably have most of it to uh, to hand quite quickly, um, but then there's more detailed versions that, that practices can enter if they uh, if they want. And and who would be using the calculator sort of from the practice team? Who is it there for? Um, it's really for everybody. And so far, it's been sort of real a mix of both GPs who are interested, but also the practice management team. So whether it be the practice manager or, or one of their deputies, 
really it's those who've got access to the uh, to the information. So whether that be the invoice folders, the the online cloud accounting software, um, or even the practice accountant can uh, can often have this information. And and how long are we talking about? Sort of in terms of just sort of getting it in the calculator and getting a, a result to some extent a few minutes um, or from a few minutes upwards so if a practice knew their um oh, well, okay. their, their, their spend on goods their spend on services their uh, annual uh, energy use for gas and electric the number of patients and the number of staff it takes three four minutes to, to enter that data onto the calculator and, and get a result it, it, it really is that fast if practices want to enter more in more detailed information obviously it takes a bit longer um, and it can take almost as long as you want but I think that uh, within an hour or two even the very detailed information will be entered yeah okay oh yeah so so really really quick then if you have the the information to hand and I I think I noticed earlier that you that you stressed that it was non-clinical carbon emissions. Why why is this? Uh, so the the NHS collectively has an ambition for uh, to reach net zero, and a lot of, has been focused so far on sort of hospitals and secondary care, and not as much on primary care. So primary care is responsible for in total about five point seven five million tons of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent emissions per year. About forty percent of that is non-clinical carbon. So it's the running of the practices, it's the energy, the travel, the the goods and the services. And the other sixty percent are clinical. So we know that there's been a lot of work going on about uh, inhalers and uh, and the damage that the propellants have. Very little has gone on at looking at that forty percent. That's the that's the running of the practice. So really, this is a calculator to sort of to, to complement uh, other work that's going on in the clinical sphere. But this only really looks at the non-clinical emissions. And and with the calculator, so a practice has, has used it, they've generated their um, emission score. How do they now sort of take this this result and what do they what do they do with it? What does it what does it mean and what can it lead to? Yeah, absolutely. So to me, the, the calculator gives people a number. So it's a bit like measuring a body mass index or a blood pressure. It's then knowing what to do with that and what actions could be put in place to uh, to, to reduce it. Um, there's a number of different tools that are available. So people uh, may well have heard of the uh, very successful Green Impact for Health Toolkit, which really gives a whole list of, uh, of suggestions of actions that uh, that we can put in place in primary care to not only reduce our impact on the natural world, more widely, but also on the um, on the carbon emissions. Equally, there's things like the um, the decarbonisation guide that's available through the website that's for practices that really is is there to try and give practices this sort of step by step walkthrough guide that helps practices to uh, to approach this in sort of a logical and uh, and methodical manner, so that we know the number, we now know what actions we need to do to uh, to reduce it. So obviously, we sort of know about the calculator now and and what it does and how it can help. I wondered if you could put um, to us some sort of real examples of how surgeries have used the calculator to um, to try to reduce their their emissions. So each of the, these four non-clinical areas, different practices are focused on uh, on each of them or on different ones. And for some, it's looking at behaviour change, and some it's looking looking at sort of you know tech or investment or, or stuff um so for example one practice uh looks at behavior change so instigated what they called an electricity responsibility plan which basically meant that each person who was working in that clinical room or in in, in the secretarial room was responsible was, was responsible for turning off their kitchen equipment at the wall at the end of the day this saved them over a thousand pounds over the year um so very very simple change 
didn't cost anything, uh, but was actually about giving people a responsibility to reduce their energy, which in turn reduces the, the emissions. Uh, another practice um, looked at a uh, an energy management system, which basically is if you uh, know that the uh, temperature on the inside and the temperature on the outside, how much heat loss is there going to be, how long do we want to keep the building warm for, and, and the, this heating system, this management system turns the heating off at the, at the right time uh, to keep the building warm for those who are still working in it. This practice reduced their energy energy or their heating bills by 10%, even though prices had risen by 10%. Um, other practices have looked at you know, their, their emissions from um, staff and patient travel. There's lots of co-benefits from active travel. And so anything that can sort of be used to encourage um, and promote active travel for both patients and staff, whether it be highlighting where the cycle routes are, looking at bike locks, bike stores, uh, looking at e-bikes for staff visits, actually this reduces the amount of sort of fossil carbon or, or um, carbon being emitted from cars and actually gets uh, staff and patients fitter and reduces the uh, uh, the emissions at the same time. Um, other practices have looked at, say, the goods that they've been buying. So, for example, uh, IUCD packs, about a third of the, the emissions are down to having a plastic kidney dish in them. Now, actually, when you speak to uh, people who, who fit coils, they don't use the, uh, the kidney dish. So we end up buying things that we don't use, we don't need, and ends up just going straight into the waste. So actually by changing the way that we buy some stuff means that uh, we can still offer great patient care, but with less environmental harm as a result. I guess to put it quite bluntly, it's not it's not rocket science. They're real sort of changes that that are quite simple. Um, in terms of, I guess, GPs being incredibly busy at the minute and containing with huge demand for services, I wondered if you could maybe tell people why it's so important that teams make an effort with their carbon footprints absolutely i i you know in the 15 years or so i've been a gp i, I don't think we've ever had pressure quite like this and absolutely it can feel like, like this is an extra role but i actually don't think it necessarily is for a whole host of reasons i mean firstly the reducing carbon emissions is actually part of national legislation we've got a net zero target as a country in the climate change act uh, we know it's part of the nhs um, ambition but more importantly we know that the climate crisis is really a health crisis um and so whether we do this because we want to reduce our emissions or whether we do it because we want to improve um our the, the health of our patients and our populations and the communities around us actually we do both at the same time so if we start early actually we can get to uh, to improve patient outcomes and reduce the uh, costs so for example you know the finances so for example from uh, from energy or but also improve uh, uh, population health which is absolutely essential so in one of our previous podcasts i interviewed uh, dr tamzin ellis about her work with the greener practice group and i asked her about plans outlined by nhs england to become carbon neutral by 2040 um i'd like to think that we give everyone the same treatment here um i wanted to ask you for your views on the plans um do you think they're achievable uh, absolutely so uh, dr ellis is really for me a very inspirational gp and with people like her and others across for example, the Greener Practice Network or those involved in the Green Impact for Health Scheme. Yes, I do think these plans are achievable um, because we've got some great people working on it. But I think we do need more tools and more resources available to primary care, whether it be this non-clinical carbon emissions calculator, the decarbonisation guide, but also new tools such as what's the carbon emissions for different medications? What care pathways for chronic diseases get the best out of 
uh, getting the best for patients, but with least environmental harm. We need expertise to help us put into place, for example, sustainable transport plans or to reduce our energy use. So, yes, we can achieve this. Yes, we do know what we need to do. But sometimes we just need that uh, that expertise to help us implement some of them. And as I mentioned earlier, now, as you mentioned, you're a locum GP in, in Yorkshire. How do locums sort of get involved with fighting climate change? Uh, they might not have sort of as big an influence over practice as, say, a partner might do. So just interested to to sort of um, hear anything that you have in terms of uh, them being able to get in, involved. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that we can all get involved. We all can raise our voice. We can all advocate for our patients, but also for our fellow colleagues. Um, we can improve our own knowledge by, for example, becoming carbon literate. Importantly, we can support others who are doing work in the field. So whether it be uh, Tamsin Ellis or uh, Dr. Artie Bansell or Honey Smith, who set up Greener Practice, or people like Terry Kempel, who helped to drive the Green Impact for Health scheme. We can, we can actively support these people. Um, we can lobby our councillors and MPs, for example, to put clean air zones across our towns, which benefit our, our patients. Um, we can change the way that we, um, that we practice, um, medicine. Having conversations with other people, whether it be patients or, or staff, is absolutely vital. If we start having conversations with people, actually we can start to, uh, to instigate change, uh, in a far wider, wider sphere. I don't, think that it matters whether we are locums or salaried or, or GPs or practice nurses or healthcare assistants or managers, we all have a, have a part and a, and a role to play. And everyone, everyone needs to get involved. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Sawyer. If you want to find out any further information about the carbon emissions calculator, go to gpcarbon.org. Finally today, we've got our good news section, which this week comes from Wales. This week, the Welsh Government and BMA Wales announced details of changes to the GMS contract. Nick, can you explain a bit about the changes and why this might actually be good news? There are some key things which are which are which are good news about the Welsh contract. Some of which we've uh, we've reported on already. I mean, one is that um, it comes with a three percent pay lift for all GPs and practice staff, and um, you know that that's in line with the uh, the the wider NHS uh, pay rise and is uh, is in excess of the amount that uh, practices in England uh, have been awarded for 21-22. And, um, but, but, but I think the, uh, the, the thing that really stood out for me in terms of uh, the, change, uh, the changes that have been agreed as part of the contract is what it shows about the different approach uh, in Wales to uh, access um, compared with uh, the approach taken in England. So, I mean, obviously, we, we reported heavily on the pressure on GP practices around face-to-face appointments and the kind of statements that have been coming out of the government and Sanjay Javid's statement that um, that GP practices should offer face-to-face appointments to anyone who would like one. So the, the, the key difference in the Welsh contract here is that they are talking about improving access but they're also the the way that they're they're planning to do that is completely different. So this contract says that they want to ensure people are triaged appropriately, and if an appointment is needed, people receive one which is right for their clinical needs. So the the difference here is effectively Wales is sticking to something like the total triage model that we saw in England earlier in the pandemic. The reason this is is good news. I mean, it's good news for for practices 
in itself, uh, in in that um, it's a, it's an acknowledgement of the capacity limits of the workforce limits that exist in general practice. So it's a good thing that uh, a, a UK government is um, is recognising it in that way. But also, I think from from the point of view of practices outside of Wales, it offers a different approach from a UK government uh, in NHS general practice that can be held up against the kind of approach being taken uh, in England as, as perhaps something that, uh, that, is, that is more sensible. And it's certainly closer, for example, to, uh, to the, the, kind of, um, the kind of warning that's come out of the RCGP. I mean, the RCGP said earlier this year that, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, faced un- unlimited face-to-face uh, appointments on demand was simply something that's undeliverable for general practice. So this seems to be a sign that a more reasonable approach is possible within UK general practice uh, and, and in agreement with the UK government. If you have any good news stories that you would like to highlight on the podcast, then please do get in touch. They could be about work you or members of your team are doing in your practice that's making a difference or anything from the world of primary care that you think would cheer up your colleagues. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and to Dr Matt Sawyer for speaking with Luke this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at gponlinenews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.